invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We have this week and next to conclude Ephesians. We will do so. Today we'll read a fairly long section stretching into chapter 6. We're delighted to continue to think about chapter 5 and verse 15. This actually this phrase that uh, is reflected in verse 15 of chapter 5 is actually the controlling phrase, if you will, for uh, the section that we're going to read today. Uh, if you will, what we're going to read is the application of the imperative that he gives in verse 15. So you'll note there in verse 15, chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we talked about this last week. The exhortation of the Bible is that we are to walk in a wise manner. We're to live our lives wisely. Now, there is a, uh, a principle, if you will, uh, that, we, that we should think about as we seek to apply the Bible in our lives. Uh, first of all, there are, there are clearly laws that we ought to follow, right? There are laws that thou shalt, thou shalt not. There's obviously the Ten Commandments. Those are laws that we should adhere to. So the Bible speaks in terms of laws or commands. But in other places, the Bible speaks uh, as to what is wise. Wise. In other words, wisdom is not necessarily a law. It's just the best thing to do. There, there are many, in fact, I dare say most decisions in our life that have to do with how do I know the wise thing to do as opposed to how do I know the right thing to do. For instance, when you get to competing goods, competing rights, compete, competing things that are honorable, true, valuable, how do you discern which one is wise and which one is less so? That's the, the more common way that we're trying to determine the will of the Lord or determine how to live our lives, how to make choices day after day. So this particular phrase in chapter 5, verse 15, is not unimportant. How do we walk wisely? Well, obviously the, the landscape is enormous. We could talk about money area. We could talk about uh, the management of property or possessions. We could talk about that area ad nauseum. Uh, we could talk about uh, any, any number of areas that would just go on and on and on where we would seek to apply wisdom. But in the case of the Apostle Paul who writes Ephesians, uh, he is not interested in talking about your money. He's not interested in talking about how you manage your property or any of those other areas. Instead, he goes right to the main thing. And the main thing is your relationship with Christ and ultimately your relationship with others. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? How do you walk wisely in loving God? How do you walk wisely in loving your neighbor as yourself? This is, this is the issue that confronts us this morning, and he addresses it in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, we've looked at this passage before. I, I reference it again and again, uh, just about once every two months. I'll have some sort of cross-reference to Ephesians chapter 5. It is among my most favorite passages of Scripture. I talk about it ad nauseum. 
If you hang out with me, you hear about this chapter a lot. So my assumption is that most of you have heard much about it. Some of you are brand new to this conversation. So you are my target. The rest of these folks are going to humor me for just a minute. I want to read beginning in verse 22. And I want to call your attention to a couple of things before we read, just to kind of give you a reading guide. He's going to talk about marriage. So he's going to address wives and husbands. Then he's going to talk about the larger families. He's going to talk about children and fathers specifically, parents in general. And then he's going to talk about slaves and masters. Now, we don't have a a modern parallel for slaves and masters. By the way, the slavery of the Bible is for the most part not chattel slavery like we'd be familiar with in the 18th and 19th century in North America. So the slavery of the Bible is more of an indentured servitude. You have a debt, you work it off. Think, we've been reading through Genesis, think uh, that uh, Jacob and Laban and the conversation there, working seven years in order to get a wife, etc. So it's more like that. Uh, It's it's not, if you will, it's not a confinement. It's not chattel slavery. But nonetheless, the modern parallel would be more likely to be employees and employers. So wives, husbands, children, parents, employees, employers. He's going to talk about those specifically under the umbrella of what does it mean to walk wisely. So what should your life look like as you do this? So let's go to read beginning in verse 22. We're going to read through the middle of chapter 6, a long section. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Obviously, a long section, and the point he's making here is that there is a way for us to live our lives in relationship with others around us that actually reflects Christ. So, I want to show you three observations that I think grow out of these uh, paragraphs that will help us to make application or to learn how to walk wisely. The first you'll find is that all of these are tied to the fundamental relationship one has with Christ. Go back, if you will, to verse 22. You'll note to wives, his uh, exhortation is to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. For husbands, verse 25, they are to love their wives as Christ. For children, chapter 6, verse 1, they are to live their lives in the Lord. Parents, chapter 6, verse 4, because this is the instruction of the Lord. Employees, chapter 6, verse 5, he in, uh, encourages them to live their lives as you would Christ. And then lastly, chapter 6, verse 9, he ties the relationship of masters to their own relationship to the master who is in heaven. In other words, let me say it a different way. Your fundamental relationship is with Christ, and that changes everything. It matters that you're a Christian. It matters that because you're a Christian, you now live your life differently. Your marriage is different. Your parenting is different. Your obedience to your parents is different. Your business affairs and business relationships, they are all different. They're all different from the world because there is a fundamental relationship in your life that's bigger than your job, it's bigger than your marriage, it's bigger than your parenting, it's bigger than anything else. It's the most important thing. If there is an area where the church routinely gets accused of hypocrisy, it is in this area of claiming to be Christian and not living their lives in their daily affairs, primarily in their relationship affairs, in a manner in which reflect, that reflects Christ. We claim A, but we appear not to regard A as we conduct our affairs, as we live our lives. What the apostle does in this chapter is say, if you want to walk wisely, then you are going to pay attention to the main thing, which is Christ. Christ is the main thing. So if you're a wife, you're a Christian wife, and you're a Christian before you're a wife. But being a Christian dominates your wife circumstance. Likewise, a husband. You're a Christian husband. And because you're a Christian, being a Christian dominates your husband life. And on and on we could go. Children, parents, employees, employers. It is these experiences with Christ that shape everything. 
In other words, it is these experiences that take, if you will, uh, a higher responsibility, a higher accountability uh, as we reflect on our relationship. Uh, let me reflect on it this way. Is it hard to be a wife? Never been one, but I live with one. Seems to me it's hard to be a wife, depending on the husband. Is it hard to be a husband? Well, I am one of those, and I should not say more than what I just said. Uh, it's never hard, right? Well, of course it's hard. It's hard to be a husband. Is it hard to be a child? Well, it's hard sometimes. Is it hard to be a parent? Well, it's hard sometimes. Is it hard to be an employee? It's hard sometimes. Hard to be a boss or business owner? Yeah, sometimes it's real hard. But in the end, the question is not how hard is it. The question is, who's really your authority? Where's your fundamental confidence, your fundamental relationship? Your relationship is with Christ. That's the point that he makes again and again. So he doesn't tell wives to do something without regard to Christ. He tells wives to do something because they are related to Christ and so forth. Every one of these applications is tied to your relationship with Christ. So the first thing I want you to see is that your fundamental relationship is with Christ and it changes everything. It changes everything. Let me give you an illustration. It doesn't really uh, show up in these three uh, contexts, but it, it's, it's a right illustration. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Paul, of course, is this Pharisee, and he's breathing hot hatred for Christians. And uh, he's on his way to Damascus with subpoenas, if you will, arrest warrants to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for their faithful living. He is met by the Lord on the road to Damascus. He is blinded. He is taken by his hand and led into Damascus where he meets uh, the Lord's ambassador who helps him deal with his uh, new experience and so forth. And then if you read carefully the book of Acts, you will find that the apostle Paul then begins to hang out with the very people he was on the road to arrest. And what's interesting is the people that he now wants to hang out with are scared of him. By the way, you would be too. That's not an abnormal response whatsoever. But they're scared of him. They don't want him to be around. They, they, they know all about him. They know who he is, what he's done. They know the nature of his threats. They've seen others perhaps carted off to jail, maybe even stoned like Stephen in Acts uh, they, don't, they don't want anything to do with him. But you'll remember the Lord provides Barnabas who speaks up for Paul and encourages them to uh, understand that he has changed. So now the Apostle Paul has begun, I would guess, slowly. The Bible doesn't give all the details we might like to ask, but slowly he's begun to welcome into these assemblies. He's, he's assimilated, if you will, into their relationships. And now the rest is history. You read the book of Acts, and the Apostle Paul is perhaps short of Christ, the greatest man who ever lived in terms of his faithfulness to Christ and his witness for Christ, his power for Christ, and so forth. But it wasn't always so. 
There was a transition. There was a change. There was a transformation. Let me say it a different way. When you meet Christ, you don't act the same way. When you meet Christ, you change. When you meet Christ, you don't hate people. When you meet Christ, you don't go out and arrest people for their faith. When you meet Christ, you don't breathe words of anger. Paul is fundamentally different because there is a fundamental change in the foundational relationship of his life. Let me challenge you this morning to think about your relationship to Christ. Have you come to Christ? And if so, what difference does it make? Can anybody see that you're a different wife, a different husband, a different child, a different parent, a different employee, a different employer? Is it making a difference? Are you walking wisely, proving that you are in Christ, showing that you are in Christ, demonstrating that you are in Christ. This is exactly what the Bible expects. There is a second thing that comes out of this, and that is that not only is your fundamental relationship with Christ, but your fundamental responsibility is to image Christ or to show Christ I'll ask it this way. What does following Jesus look like? What does following Jesus look like? Many of us can remember the WWJD, what would Jesus do, craze of several years gone by. That is, uh, for the most part, became a big marketing campaign, an opportunity to sell T-shirts and pencils. Um, but that's a rabbit I'll leave for another day. That being said, I, I do think there is some merit to ask the question, what does following Jesus look like? What would Jesus have me to do? So what is your responsibility? If you are in Christ, your relationship is Christ, your relationship is foundational in Christ, then what would Jesus have me to do? Well, again, follow the verbs, follow the action always as you think about these things. So you'll note in verse 22, chapter 5, wives are to submit. The perhaps more understandable word comes to the conclusion of that paragraph, verse 33, respect. So the wives are to respect their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives, verse 25. Children, chapter 6, verse 1, are to obey their parents. Parents, chapter 6, verse 4, are to train their children. Chapter 6, verse 5, employees or slaves is the word here, but we understand that is probably a better reference to employees in our context. We are to obey our bosses, and ultimately then our bosses or masters, verse 9, are to lead in such a way as to reflect Christ. So what would Jesus have me to do? The short answer is just be like Jesus. Well, I don't know what Jesus would do when my employee keeps coming to work late. Well, I bet you could figure it out. He probably wants you to have some sort of conversation. 
doesn't have to be confrontation. Can be conversation. Probably wants you to educate. Probably wants you to train. You read Jesus' life story in the Gospels and you find that Jesus took people that are as irresponsible as your employees <laughs> and he trained them and 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 trained them again. Is it possible to train and people just never get it? I suppose if Judas is an example, I suppose so. But not for failing to train. Because you see, he ties it, verse 9. Masters, do the same with them. Stop your threatening because God is your master. God, and there is no plurality in him. God doesn't discriminate between your value and your employee's value. Wives, why should you respect your husband? Well, A, God told you to. B, because you're in Christ and whatever God tells you to do, that's what you should do. And C, because this is the way in which God intends for you to image Christ, to show Christ, to, to bear responsibility, to show Christ. We are to, it is, we are to have life transformation. We are to live our lives in such a way as to reflect Christ. Those of you who've been around a long time know that I have much to say about this marriage passage. I, uh, if you'll permit, I will make one further application here uh, as regards this marriage passage. Interesting, in the end of the man section or the husband section, he quotes in verse 31 Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I don't know if, if you read the Bible and seek to read the Bible with comprehension, but I want to tell you that depending on how you read that paragraph, that phrase, that quote from Genesis 2 appears to be an outlier. It appears not to connect to everything else. That phrase is used three times prior in the Scripture. One in Genesis when it was spoken originally. What happened? Adam and Eve are married before there is any other institution, before the law, before the church, before any other institution on earth, before there was government Anything else, God created marriage. The fundamental building block of God's society is marriage. So he uses that phrase, a man shall leave and cleave. Those are very strong Hebrew words, leave and cleave. There's an issue of commitment. There's an issue of covenant. There's an issue of, of uh, fidelity uh, in, implied in those words. Then in the book of Matthew, again in, in Mark chapter 10, that's the parallel passage of the same experience. He, he's asked about divorce. And the question about divorce is, is it right for a man to divorce his wife? To which Jesus retorts there in Mark chapter 10. Uh, well, what does Moses say? Well, Moses says it was legal, to which Jesus clarifies. Moses says it's legal only for the purposes of infidelity or if you will, sexual sin. Pornia is the Greek word, which can mean all kinds of sexual sin. Doesn't have to be merely adultery, but could be 
many other kinds of sexual sin. So it, it is possible. And then he says, only for the hardness of your heart. In other words, you're not required to get a divorce, but only if your heart suggests you can't go forward here. You can't continue in your responsibilities because of the gravity of this sexual sin and the offense that that has brought on your life. Because if that's the case, then you are free to divorce. But it was interesting, he says, but don't forget what's going on here. And he quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. What God has brought together. In other words, what you find about Christian marriage, what you find as the people of God and their marriage is they are not suggesting their marriages are better per se or different per se with challenges. They're, they're still hard husbands and hard wives and so forth. They're selfish people that comprise these circumstances, but there is a fundamental glue. There is a fundamental agenda. There is a fundamental relationship that transcends how hard it is, how difficult it is. So no matter how hard wives respect, husbands love, and by the way, don't forget Genesis 2, 24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, he says, it is very, very hard to break up what God has done and what people are committing to keep intact. It's very hard to break it up. So there's this fundamental relationship with Christ. It empowers or buoys a wife. It buoys a husband. It buoys a child. It, it shapes parents, employees, and employers. It, it re is reflected in the manner in which we live our lives. And we are to take it seriously because God has been in this thing from the beginning. So your marriage... Go back to uh, Ephesians 5, verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. There's more going on in your marriage than just boy meets girl and sparks fly. There's really more going on. We don't understand all of that, nor do we try to pretend that we understand all of that, but we acknowledge it is true. And we should take seriously then what God takes seriously. So your fundamental relationship is with Christ and your fundamental responsibility is to image Christ. And then lastly, I want you to see that heaven matters. Heaven matters, or I'm borrowing that word heaven to, to show you that you're ultimately your relationship with God in eternity is the controlling interest here. I want you to see it here in verse 23. Chapter 5 and verse 23. Uh, For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the body, rather head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. By, by using the word Savior, he's implying that there is a future, there is a future blessing or benefit. There's a future gain. It's called ultimate salvation. 
Now, we know as Christian people, when Christ saves us, He saves us now. I'm as saved in this life as I'm ever going to be. I am saved, saved, saved. But I am not as saved as I'm going to be in the life to come. So I have a Savior, and I'm enjoying my Savior. If you're a Christian, you have a Savior, and you're enjoying your Savior. And the Savior intercedes for you and shepherds you and watches over you, etc., even now. But one day you shall die, Moses said in Psalm 90, fly away. And as we fly away, we fly to more Savior. So there is an implied reference here to heaven in verse 23. And that is that your relationship to your husband is tied to the fact that you have a Savior and that he ultimately is your rescue, your ransom, your redeemer. He is your Savior. He's going to save you from this life and all of its foibles. Even the best marriage experiences pain. And the best marriage experiences regret and sorrow and disappointment, even offense. But the good news is, live your lives as regard to the fact that one day the Savior will rescue you, help you, and redeem you ultimately and finally, and that the troubles of this world will pass away. Wives, respect with regard to the Savior. Notice as regard husbands, heaven matters, because in verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, husbands, you are to love your wife because there's more going on here than you understand. There is a church and Christ relationship in every Christian marriage that the church and its role under Christ somehow is being mirrored, somehow is being attached, somehow is being is allied with uh, your marriage. That, that, in other words, heaven matters. What's going on here somehow has something to do with there. How much, in what detail, in what regard, I don't know. You don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does say that there's nothing going on here that's not somehow tied to what is now and will be going on there. Heaven matters. Look at verse 2, chapter 6. He says to children, honor your father and mother because this is the first commandment with a promise. If you go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you will find that the Bible says that they are to honor their parents so that they may live long in the land. He says that, verse 3, go well with you and live long in the land. It is a, it turns out there is a God who's overseeing, over, he's giving oversight to your life. God is, as it were, on overwatch, is looking at our life, thinking about us, reflecting on us, if you will, evaluating us, judging us. I don't say that in a hard way, but, but he's, he, he notes the manner in which we live our life, and that somehow the hand of God, the work of God in our lives is tied to the manner in which we live. So heaven is paying attention to earth. I always reflect on God's conversation with Satan as regards Job. The Bible says Satan has been walking to and fro on the earth, shows up in heaven, talks to God. God says, have you seen my servant Job? 
And of course, Satan says, sure, I've seen him. And the only reason he's that and that and that and that and that is because you keep padding the walls and blessing his life. And the only reason he's good is because you don't give him any reason to be bad. Okay, well, I'm not debating that conversation. I'm simply telling you that how does God know what's going on in Job's life to point him out to Satan? And then how does Satan know what's going on in Job's life to react to God pointing him out? The answer is heaven matters. Heaven knows what's going on. You're, you're not living your life off the grid. You're not living your life off the overwatch of God. Children, obey your parents. This is the commandment that's tied to a promise. Parents, train your children. Don't provoke your children, but bring them up in discipline and instruction. Train your children. Why? Because your assignment is to train your children. <coughs> Said another, another way, your children, the purpose of you having children is not so you could have a trophy. The purpose for you having children is you train the next generation of righteous ones. One day, every person in this room, if the Lord tarries, doesn't return, every person in this room, every person watching by live stream, will die. And who will take the baton from you? Well, ideally, it would be your children. Now, we all know that there are many factors that enter into that. But ideally, it would be your children. They would take the baton and they would carry on. If not your children, your grandchildren. There would be an influence in your life of training and instruction that's raising up the next generation. We care deeply about that. We want that to be true. We want that for our church. We're not simply trying to just, you know, get through the last short time of our life. Instead, we're trying to raise up people who will take the baton and be wise and walk wisely and think about their own lives the way God has taught us to live our lives. So, parents train your children. And if in the church somebody shows up without parents that needs training, then let's let the church embrace the responsibility to assist, to train. Employees, obey, he tells us in verse 5. Obey your earthly matters with fear and trembling because you will, verse 8, you will receive back from the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? That the manner in which you conduct your affairs in your work circumstance merits, merits, not, not just grace. There is grace, but there's also merit here. You will receive back from the Lord. He promises a payback. So the manner in which you conduct your affairs at work, and the manner in which you live your life, honoring, respecting, serving, obeying, doing your job, that matters. God is paying attention. Then lastly, masters, lead in such a way that you know that your master is 
your employee's master, and your employee's master is your master, and that God is not partial to you over them or them over you. In other words, you may be more important in the world's eyes. You're the boss. You're taking all the risks. You're the one who works harder. You're the one who works longer. You're the one who carries the load, burdens all the, 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 the problems. All right, I get it. But in the end, that martyr complex that you're building around yourself there is not righteous and ultimately gives the soil from which now you can treat people around you as less than valuable and forget that their master is your master and that their master has given them that job and that your master has given you this job and it's the same master. I say this to young preachers all the time. You find a guy who's coming along and he's kind of on the fast track and he thinks he's supposed to be somebody. People supposed to listen to him. And he's preaching to this many and he thinks he ought to be preaching to this many. And I remind him, you're not in charge. You're not in charge whether it's this or that. The Bible simply says if you're faithful in a little he will extend the boundaries. That's true of preachers. That's true of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers too. So, well, I wish God would hurry up and extend my boundaries. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Timing is everything, right? Wish God would have done it last year, year before, five years ago, ten years ago. I feel like I'm treading water. I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like nobody values me. I feel like nobody appreciates me. Friend, can I just urge you to walk wisely? There is a master who's paying attention to your life, and he knows what he's doing. When I was in high school, I played football. At the end of every practice, the beginning of the year, we had to run wind sprints. I don't know who decided how many wind sprints, but we actually had to run 15 wind sprints. That means you start at the goal line and you run to the other end, 100 yards, 15 times. Do you know how hard it is for fat boys to run 100 yards 15 times? Well, I wasn't quite so heavy then, let's be clear, but it's still a lot. You get about a third of the way through there and you say, I think five's enough. Let's go to the house. But you keep running. Or two-thirds of the way. I think ten's enough. But you keep running. And the reason you keep running is because somebody who's not you decided that 15 was the number. You can decide that there's a time limit on your faithfulness. And your faithfulness might be respect or love, or obedience, or training, or obedience, or leading, your faithfulness takes all kinds of shapes depending on who we're talking about and what context we're talking about. You can decide, I'm only going to be faithful for this long. I'm only going to do right for this length of time. I'm only going to do the right thing as long as these conditions are met. But the Bible doesn't address it 
that way. The Bible doesn't give you or me permission to short-circuit what God is doing in the manner in which he's doing it. God decides how long the, the, the mud stays on the wheel for him to shape it. God determines how many strokes of the knife it takes to actually whittle away the, the sin or the dross in our lives, the thing that's not righteous. God decides these things. You don't. I want to urge you to give contemplation to what it means to walk wisely, to borrow the phrase at the end of that paragraph in verse 15, 16, 17, and understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to understand because the days are evil, and one day we will fly away. Until then, keep your eyes on Christ, measure your life against Christ, and realize that heaven is watching, and heaven actually cares about the manner in which you live. Give God glory today and walk wisely. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the manner in which you have demonstrated faithfulness to us again and again and again. Thank you, Father, for this day and the privilege of gathering together as your people this season of the year is so, so precious to us. We thank you for the coming of Christ, for the witness of God to us and for us. And thank you, Father, that you have given us one for whom we can live and serve and can anticipate the promises of eternal life. Thank you, God. We love you so. Help us to go from here walking wisely in following Christ. First, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.